to the How Could You Podcast. I'm Lauren Tossie. And I'm Ryan Tossie. And these children that you spit on as they try to change their worlds are immune to your consultations. They're quite aware of what they're going through. It's like a real kick in the door quote way to start a movie. And I just don't know where you go from there when you've had something so profound on screen. I think all movies should start with a David Bowie quote. I 100% agree. I also think that all movies should start with glass shattering after. I 100% disagree. (laughs) Uh, Well, welcome everyone. If this is your first time joining our podcast, we are two people who fell in love at a movie theater and never quite left. We started this podcast to fill gaps in our film knowledge uh, that we desperately needed to take care of. um, And we've, you know, expanded it to have great cinematic debates to talk about movies that inspire us, enthuse us, confuse us, and everything in between. And it feels incredibly fitting that you started this podcast with a David Bowie quote, because we have something really special that's coming up. If you are vinyl obsessed like we are, you may know of a biannual event called Record Store Day. Uh, Record Store Day is a day in which exclusive drops, limited editions, new releases, special edition vinyls are, are, you know, distributed and sold at your local record stores. And we are very excited because we are going to be playing a small part in this incredible event. At the Compact Disc Center in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania on April 22nd, we are going to be recording a live... We'll do it live. (laughs) Um, uh, And on location, let's call it on location (laughs) recording of our podcast. Uh, Mary, who is the owner and just absolute gem of a human being of the Compact Disc Center, has invited us to come out. There's going to be a band playing uh, by the name of Laurel Canyon from 12 to 1, and then we'll be going on sometime after that. We are just beyond thrilled and excited for this opportunity to take you know, part in a small way with Record Store Day and supporting local shops and also get to do something entirely new for the podcast. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, hopefully we can maybe, she's going to be really busy, but we can get Mary on the mic for a little bit to talk with her. I'd love to have that happen. Uh, it's just like encyclopedic knowledge. It's incredible. But I also like picture that this is going to be like, like a, a Christmas movie where it's like the last shopping day before the holiday and there's going to be like like receipt tape flying and, right. and we're going to be like, no, seriously, come here, talk on the podcast. Yeah, and if, you you know, vinyl's not your thing, they're going to have old CDs, they have uh, v- movies, they have posters, they've got they've got it all for you. They have ya. cassette tapes. Yeah, yes, yeah, so it should be, it's going to be a great time. Definitely check it out and, you know, Say hi to us as we're talking for about an hour or so. <laughs> yeah, and we'll so we will keep you updated on our social media with the exact times we like I said, we think we're going on around one o'clock, but the whole event starts at eight AM. So if you are hungry for some of those exclusive vinyls, you're gonna want to get there early to get your hands on them. And maybe a little uh, Tossie's Tease is maybe we'll talk about a soundtrack or two while we're there. Ooh, is that what our episode's it about? Might be, might be. But when we talk about music and films, kind of this is movie we're talking about today. It's hard not to think of, right? I mean, you always talk about needle drops in films. And does this movie have one of the biggest? Like this song, there is a song associated with this movie that's just... I mean, you, you can't think of this movie without the song or the song without this movie, right? No, exactly. So don't you forget about me by Simple Minds. Like, it is one of, I, I really feel like this is a, a movie moment with music or a movie music moment where it transcends, even if you don't know the film, you probably know this. And it's one of those things, like, it when that part drops, like, people put their fist up in the air. Like, it is, yeah. it's one of those songs that is so, like, inextricably tied with this film. It's, like, hard not to associate them together. It's, like, instant nostalgia when 
you threw that song. I think it's legally binding that at least one <laughs> time while listening to this, you had to throw your fist up yeah, in Yeah, it's it, true. Right? Like, I mean, completely. And, you know, the song actually was written for this movie by Ken Forsey, specifically for this film. Uh, but it wasn't offered to Simple Minds first. It was actually offered to Billy Idol first. Uh, so if you can kind of think of it. And then he turned it down. Then they offered it to the pretenders who turned it down. But the pretenders are the ones that actually said, you know, check out Simple Minds, ask them. We think this might work better for them. So, Well, and this is an interesting sliding door moment because if you think about, like, what that would have sounded like in Billy Idol's voice, right. like, or not to be too punny, but that kind of rebel yell, I feel like mm -hmm. it. it's a very different tone to bookend the film because the song appears in both spots. And fits the glass shattering a little bit 100%, more. hundred <laughs> percent, right? I mean, any movie starting with a little idol and ending with a little idol is a, is a quality film. Um, it is interesting that they use Simple Minds here um, at to start the film and to end the film, right? Yeah. Like, it's an interesting choice that I think also is another reason why this song gets so synonymous with the film. Well, and I think when you have, like, so there's a really, like, wonderful tradition in 80s films where I feel like there's, like, always one really great song on the soundtrack. Like, one song that you really associate with the film. Like, for example, you think about The Karate Kid Part 2 um, and Glory of Love. Like, that song is referenced throughout the film because of the fact of, like, that's the song song for that film and and then if you look at the rest of the soundtrack it's it's okay like there's nothing really that special happening on it but i think you have this tradition in 80s films where there's that song that is meant to be so closely associated that it becomes like an anthem almost like almost like the score itself for the film see i'll say that my feeling on the the soundtrack which is a popular enough soundtrack but i will agree that i don't think it works on its own as well as a lot of great soundtracks mm -hmm. i think if you look at it, the songs work in a vacuum. They work within the film really nicely. I think it's curated throughout the film and, and works. Like, it's not, anything doesn't seem out of place, really gets a vibe of the movie. But then when you put it onto its al onto an album itself, I don't know if it's as, quite hits as well, uh, it would be my opinion. Well, and I agree, and I'll save this comment, like, because obviously I'm, I'm gesturing towards something that I think about, like, 80s film soundtracks. Obviously, there are definitely some notable exceptions that maybe we'll talk about on record store day. <laughs> but, like, I also think that sometimes, like, soundtracks can feel either populated by music that makes sense for that time or can really feel specific and like Don't You Forget About Me feels incredibly specific to this film but I don't know if the rest of the soundtrack has that specificity. I love uh, We Are Not Alone by Carla DeVito. Like that's okay. probably the other right. song that I pull out of it but yeah. 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 <laughs> I disagree but I, I understand where you're coming from. So I have to ask you uh, family feud style here. Hmm. 100, 100 people surveyed. Okay. Top five answers on the board. Oh, okay. Oh gosh I love the family feud. Name Five 80s films. Okay. Can you treat me, though, like Richard Dawson and get real close and kiss me on the cheek? <laughs> right. Um, okay. I'm going Richard Dawson running man style, though. <laughs> <laughs> there are innocent people down there. <laughs> Sorry. Can't help myself. All right, wait. So you're saying top five 80s films. Are you thinking, like, is this, like, quintessential when you think of the 80s? Yes. Oh, okay. 80s All films. Right. Just... Um, so I'm going E.T. Uh-huh. Top Gun. Right. Dirty Dancing. Probably. Rocky Four, probably not. But go ahead. Wow, ouch. I mean, he did stop the Cold War, so he did. yeah, maybe. He did yeah. Tussie, you know, you know, history is important too. Um, and Breakfast Club, obviously. Right, and that's the assignment here, right? Like yeah. that's what we're trying to get. If I'm asking you top five teen films of all time. How far down the list are you getting until you get to The Breakfast Club? I know it's like number one with a bullet. So that brings us to the question of this week's podcast, which is. 
How could you not rank The Breakfast Club as the greatest teen film of all time? And you pose a question that even in my most contrarian state is impossible to argue with. Because, like, to try and deny the influence and the overwhelming power that this film has, like, across generations is, like... It would be the thinnest of arguments. And even if I'm critical of the film, like, I can't deny the exact question you're asking. Like, yeah, it's like the greatest teen film of all time. Right. That's that's the thing of it, right? No matter what you think of it, it's the greatest teen film of all time. Yes. So let's uh, let's go back in time. Yay. March 24th, 1984. Uh-huh. Eight hour Saturday detention. Yes. First off, is that a thing? Yes, that is a thing. <laughs> so I want to I ask you two questions. I want to kick this nostalgia cinema style, <laughs> RIP nostalgia cinema that doesn't exist any longer, but something we used to do on our, our Q&A after the show, which would be we'd ask these types of questions. So my question to you, Lauren, when you were in high school, were you, what type of archetype were you? Were you the brain, the princess, the athlete, the criminal, or the basket case? The brain. All right. All right. Cool. Cool. <laughs> I can see that. <laughs> Which is the really caring way of, of, in the letter of saying, the nerd. <laughs> I appreciate you avoiding trying to, to mix them. I actually, from the way you asked the question, I went, he will take no, like, sideways answers exactly. of, like, I'm both. I don't want any of those, like, first day of you know, work where they give you these surveys and then they're going to give you some type of personality that you are. And you mix with this and... Lovey, we can talk about that, too, if you want. Therapies are therapies for Wednesdays. Got it. OK. Uh, <laughs> all right. So now my next question, when you see these characters, which character are you when you see their full arc? Which one were you in high school? Were you Brian, Claire, Andrew, Allison or Bender? Um, OK, so here's the thing. I think there is this real part of me that wants to gesture towards some sort of recognition with the character of Allison. And I'm not saying that's not there. But in truth. Brian is me, me is Brian. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't deny there's an awkwardness and there's an anxiousness and there's a trying to fit in, uh, not in a clawing way, but in a way in which I think he has like a natural, in a weird way, almost has like a natural confidence of like, what, I'm funny too, guys. Um, you know, that I kind of appreciate and and remember very much feeling in high school of trying to kind of find my place, which I think is what Brian is trying to do. You had a fake ID so you could vote, didn't you? Oh my gosh, that is the thing that I'm like, <laughs> yes, dude. That is, I wish I had thought to do that. Because that would have been like, because then I could have voted in so many more elections. Like, um, yeah, no, 100%. Um, I also appreciate the fact that you immediately know I'm not throwing this question back to you because you're Andy and, and end of conversation. <laughs> I, I I was never as cool as Emilio Estevez. Oh, like, Sweetie, Emilio Estevez is not cool in this movie. <laughs> what? He's very charming. He's not cool. All right. And I also need to clear something up before we go further. Um, are we calling him Andy or Andrew? We're going to call him Andy. Andy. Okay. All right. Got it. I don't want to get yell that again <laughs> um so all right so we gotta move in let's let's talk about why these char- five characters are at detention yes. so before we start i gotta ask you another question did yeah. you ever have detention in high school many a time many a time <laughs> are you sure you were not bender were no. you not the criminal okay so the reasons i had detention was um excessive tardies in the morning um and and so that i had to do an early, <laughs> extra early morning detention which i was just like is really risky with the person who can't even get here on time to make me come in <laughs> at 6 a.m for like detention and sit in sister helen's office um a lot of talking during class. 
<laughs> like, I got in trouble a lot. It was on, I think, every progress report from kindergarten to through senior year of high school. Like, great to have in class. Talks too much. Um, I also got in trouble and sent to the disciplinarian's office. I went to Catholic high school um, because I wore Mardi Gras beads on Fat Tuesday, which violated our school's excessive jewelry policy. Wait, you're telling me Mardi Gras beads were not accepted at the Catholic high school? <laughs> The best was, though, I got to Sister Helen's office, and I told her what happened, and she said, you're celebrating, and wrote me a note to give back to my teacher that I would not be getting a demerit for excessive jewelry because I was celebrating the holiday. It was, I have never walked with my head held higher back to theology class. What'd you have to do in your detentions? Sit. You couldn't do anything. No. You had Yeah, so sit, you couldn't talk, and it was like nuns who did detention, so You didn't have it. to figure out a way to <laughs> learn. No, like I didn't. Study. No, I just remember being really, because they didn't have all the lights on in the office. It was just like dark and sad and just nuns staring at you doing paperwork. <laughs> You're just like thinking about how you have either like blasphemed the Lord or were talking during class or can't get to school on time. I think I think you got off, uh, or maybe these kids got off easier. Than <laughs> right. You. Um, no, yeah, Vernon's detention's pretty metal compared yeah. to what we had to do. Um, what about you? Did you ever have a detention? <laughs> I I did. I had one detention in my entire uh, high school career. Um, I was a little bit of a, a goody two shoe, I guess. Um, <laughs> so I got a detention literally within like the last three weeks before I, I graduated. <laughs> Amazing. We had senior skip day, which was just like a well-known thing in our high school. Sure. Like everybody just, you know, everybody was out. Everybody did it. It was just kind of a, you just, you know, as it normally is. And nobody ever blinked an eye. But tradition. Uh, fortunately, my senior year, we had a brand new assistant principal. I think she was assistant principal who decided to take it upon herself that she was going to bring the... You know, the hammer down on all these kids skipping school and drove around the mean streets of Pomerant and trying to find any of us that were hanging out. And what she found was a, a group of like, you know, our salutatorian, our, our student council president. I was class president. Bunch of us just hanging out at the lake, you know, doing nothing, hurting nobody. Ooh, would we call that a lake? All right. <laughs> so the three eye fish Beltsville Lake. <laughs> we weren't swimming. <laughs> I just, I just like to think of her. She had this like red convertible, and I like to think that she was just singing that, like just playing the song like one way or another. I'm gonna, you know, as she drove around, kind of at this like Corella Deville look. <laughs> she drove. Right, so two thoughts immediately. One, I like that this educator saw Ferris Bueller's Day Off and went, "Ooh, a template." <laughs> she really did. You know, she's like that guy. Right. Him and I are onto something. <laughs> And then, like, the second thing of this is I'm just thinking of, like, a convertible in your, like, coal region town of Pomerden, and I'm just thinking, like, that's a bold choice. Yeah. Yeah. For the record, I probably didn't have a convertible. I just remember it that way, but... I also see you as the kind of um, curious that you would have been just like, well, I don't want to go all of high school without getting a detention. So were you a little proud you had one? No, I was very upset. Oh, so much oh, so okay. that I thought I would make a T-shirt, you know, stencil lettering stating that it was my uh, first and only detention in high school. I was a dork. <laughs> No, you're a rebel. <laughs> Speaking of rebels, let's talk about our five <laughs> kids here. So Claire Standish, played by the, you know, 80s icon Molly Ringwald, um, she ditched class for the day for shopping. Yes. 
worthy of a detention. Yeah, I always th- imagine it that this was like a repeat offense. Like yeah. they'd finally caught her. I gotcha. But I also have to know, like, similarly, was there like some educator on a personal day, like at the food court and was like, oh man, th- I know that kid. I'm going to burn them for having been at the mall during class. No, it was the uh, Pomerton principal <laughs> of 1999 chasing <laughs> Claire down. Oh, this is your principal's origin story. <laughs> yes, I <guess>. right. <laughs> this is the prequel. Um, we got uh, John Bender played by... Uh, Ever, who doesn't love Judd Nelson, uh, who pulled a fire alarm. Yeah, that deserves an eight-hour detention. That's fair. All right, yeah. yes. But I also am like, in the 80s, did the police and the fire department even come? Where they were like, <laughs> ah, I don't see smoke. <laughs> well, and they probably, like, you feel like Bender just, like, it feels a little beneath Bender, I gotta say. I feel like he did it in front of a teacher just to make them mad. Mm, like, So I have a fire alarm outside of my classroom, and I, like, fear the day either that a kid knocks into it or a kid just defiantly is like, whelp, and pulls it. I have this, like, true intense fear about this. Yeah, <laughs> don't blame you. Um, Allison Reynolds, who's played by Ali Sheedy, um, she just said she had nowhere else to be. Yep. <laughs> Do we believe her? 100%. You'd think so? So listen, She's I, kind of a bit of a compulsive liar, so. I actually don't think she is a compulsive liar. I think that's the thing that she says. You think she was lying about li- being a liar? Yes. Whoa, there's level <laughs> onion. <laughs> um, no, I actually think that that's like probably like one of the tr- she I think drops a lot of incredible like wisdom bombs throughout this movie. But I think it is like she's probably someone who feels so lost and disconnected and wants to kind of observe life. Like I'm kind of thinking like the prototype for like Marla going to the AA meetings in Fight Club. Like, just kind of wants to watch the freak show and go, like, no, I'm sorry, not that I'm saying an AA is a freak show. I'm talking about, like, what Marla right, does. Right, right, right. Like, just wants to watch, like, people's little personal tragedies and go, like, I'm going to observe this. I really think that's what's going on there. Then we have Andrew Clark, played by the previ- previously mentioned uh, Mr. Emilio Estevez, who um, taped a guy's butt cheeks together. Um... I'm trying to figure out if that's a criminal offense as opposed to a... That is like an out-of-school suspension. You need to be lawyered up because you're probably going to get expelled. But in the 80s, I think hazing was encouraged, so... (laughs) Yes. Was this more punishment than other schools would give? He was also, you know, know, a star athlete. Does he get a little bit of a a break that way? Can you explain some logic to me? Um, In Shermer, Illinois, which doesn't exist... In Shermer, Illinois, like, why is it that their wrestling season is this late into March? Because it didn't make sense to me that he has a match that's coming up. Yeah, so this is Saturday. He says, I got to meet Saturday, which was worded a little odd because I'm like, wouldn't you say like next weekend or something like that? So he just goes a week without another match. I agree with you. It, that means he has a meet. So it's not even like he's like their state tournaments late. No. I'm with you. A little strange. Okay. Good point. I, you know what? I'm very proud of you for pointing that out. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah. I listen. <laughs> and then finally, we have uh, Brian Johnson, played by, you know, the legend, Anthony Michael Hall. Evil dies tonight, everybody. <laughs> See, here's the problem. You think evil dies tonight, and I think of Anthony Michael Hall getting dragged up on the stage at a Rocky Horror Picture Show late night at a horror convention. <laughs> that true is story. my image that's, of Anthony that's a Michael true Hall. story that we saw. Um, in, in, in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, yeah, folks. That's right. <laughs> What a time to be alive. Um, and, okay, so he gets suspended or, you know, gets attention for bringing a flare gun for obviously planning to do something really awful. Um, but I think they're pretty clear about what he, his intention yes. was. So um, I think this speaks more to the um, lack of care of mental health in the 80s. 
Well, that's something just like, it's the, uh, yeah, you wanted to harm yourself, uh, punish immediately. <laughs> right. And his mom's like really pissy in the car yes. with him. Yeah. Because it's, unless we're just supposed to literally think that the kids are the only ones that really question why, you know, he has the flare gun. There is one version of this is that I think potentially like they're the only ones who know. I also think there's an argument made here that the custodian perhaps... Well, Custodian there, Carl may cover for him in a way that, like... Mm, that's a good question. Now, that's really good. So, there is... I know that there is a deleted scene um, where Carl... Uh, that we find out that Carl was the one that was, like, to the the flare gun first and everything and, and Brian's locker. So, yeah, maybe there is more there. I, I agree with you. Um, so, that's how we get our five into detention. You know, this movie's built on just great scenes, specific, iconic scenes, and quotes. So, I want to ask you, what is some of your favorite scenes? Okay, so this is because it has nothing to do with the five kids. One of my favorite scenes <laughs> is, the, is the scene between Vernon and Carl. Uh, well, one, I love that Carl um, low-key is going to blackmail Vernon because he's looking through the secret... 50 bucks. <laughs> But he's looking through the secret files downstairs. This guy is the principal of the school. He has access to this. Why is this scandalous? Vernon's the one who makes it weird and opens himself up to a certain kind of blackmailing. Okay, so <laughs> he's the assistant principal one. He's not the principal. He would still have access to those files. Two, I'm gathering this is supposed... And now, I don't know how this works, but, like, are these supposed to be, like, the files that, like... Like, the guidance counselors and stuff. Do the principals still, they still have? have access to it. Okay. Yes. You also are, are going by education system now. 35 years later. See, here's the thing. If you tell me that Vernon is trying to... Yes, you did the math correctly. <laughs> um, if you're telling me that Vernon is trying to look through, like, these are teacher files and he's trying to, like, blackmail other colleagues, that tracks the dude's a snake. But if you're telling me this is about the kids, I don't know. That feels odd. But anyways, he falls for it. And it brings me to our favorite scene. I love the conversation that happens between where Carl has to explain to Vernon, the kids haven't changed, you have. Because to me, one of the things that this movie does between the opening Bowie quote, where it's, you know, the kids are very aware of what they're going through. And then this moment is like, it helps to really address a thing that I think happens generationally where we assume as we get older, that the generations below us are somehow morally bankrupt, more devoid of feeling, more desensitized, um, rowdier, more rebellious, just bad all around. And I think what Carl very rightly points out is like, look, you took this because you thought this was going to be an easy job and you were one kind of way when you entered and you allowed yourself to become this. And to me, it's like a, a really incredible prophetic warning towards like something that happens later where the kids are discussing like, are we all going to become our parents? And it's like this idea of like, you don't have to. Carl hasn't. Carl doesn't feel like negative about younger generations. He doesn't feel beaten up by the system. Like he, he, he's wise and he's living his life and he seems to have a good head on his shoulders. Vernon's the one who's become twisted. And I also love the scene because I have had this conversation so many times with colleagues <laughs> that you would be shocked. Like it's because I think it's a very real thing that happens that generational divide. If you want to see the divide and forget what it is just to be a teenager, I think it's easy for that to happen. But I think this scene is like, 
okay, but as you're watching this, when you're a teenager, you're going to relate to this part. And when you get older, you need to remember what it was always like to be a teenager because it helps you keep connected to a certain empathy for the kids who are still trying to figure it out. Would you say then that the adults keep getting older, but the kids stay the same age? <laughs> <laughs> I, you know what? I don't think that's what I was going for, but I appreciate the reference. But no, I just, I love, one, because I think Carl is, like, an incredibly underappreciated character in this film. He is. He's the eyes and ears of that institution. And the thing is, is, like, if you've ever worked in a school, that is, like, 100% the truth. Well, I think it's a bridge, right? I mean, the kids generally, I love the, you know, I do love that scene when Bender starts kind of trying to mock Carl a little bit um, and then Carl fires back at him in a way that presses uh, Bender like where Bender not- smile like he realizes like no I'm not taking your, your BS I'm not playing into that like you think you're gonna get me but I'm not gonna get worked up like these other adults well because I think the thing is, is he doesn't he doesn't belittle and I think one of the things that's easy to happen is, is like when I think there is a way of being an authority where you're an authoritarian and you're like, no, you listen to me because I'm an adult. And what that forgets is that there's a human exchange that's supposed to happen here that your age doesn't dictate why I should have respect for you. And I think Carl has that on lock. He understands that. So he doesn't belittle or condescend to Bender. He speaks to him directly as a human, as though it doesn't matter if an adult had said that to Carl, he would have responded the same way. Yes. And I love that. Yeah. So, um, um you know. In this movie, this teen movie about these five kids, I'm going to start with the principal and the janitor. <laughs> Spoken like a true educator. <laughs> Do you, all right, so uh, I'll volley to you. Do you have a favorite scene you want to start us off with? You know, there's so many good ones, right? Like, I mean, I just, you know, we get even right with the drop-off. Like, I just think, like, I love the introduction of these these characters, you know, and that leads into, you know, we have Brian being dropped off by his mom, like you pointed out, who, who that's actually played by Anthony Michael Hall's mom and sister. Oh, great. Um, you know, and it's, you know, we get Andrew's dad, or Andy's dad, who's, you know, the the gruff wrestling dad who's like, you know, you want to mess with your scholarship, you know, um, Allison who gets out of the car and her parents don't even say anything. Like it just sets the bender walks there by himself. Uh, Claire, who's obviously again, you know, the architect of the princess where she's her question. Her dad is like, you couldn't get me out of this. Like, it's just, (laughs) well, and it realizes it, like it it helps to very quickly express. And I think you and I love films that do this. It introduced, I know we talked about that a lot in our first ever episode of the podcast about the Goonies. Like we, I think you and I both geek out about films that are able to do this efficiently and deftly. And this is a film that a hundred percent does it. Cause I love like, you know, cause you have that great quote, you have the glass shattering, then you have like, the display of the graffiti, which, by the way, someone's going to need to explain to me. Um, I want a whole separate film that's just about the life of the club that is listed as the Poontangers um, <laughs> that is graffitied on the bathroom stall. I like to think that it's the AV club myself. And I, someone write that movie. Shout out to Jargon Films. Um, but I also think, uh, you know, what you're talking about is helpful because it almost makes you say, like, the conditions of why they are the way they are and why they're here is is entirely dependent upon their home environments. So this film, it's shot at Maine North High School in De Plains, Illinois, which is really important because it's the same high school that uh, Ferris Bueller 
takes place in. So the indoors of Ferris Bueller take place at the same high school that the outdoors uh, shots take place in Breakfast Club. Would you like me to do the monologue from Dogma as delivered by one Jason Hughes <laughs> at this time? Or shall I say Wait, it? does he actually say yes, the high school? Yes, he does version? talk about He talks about Shermer Illinois. He talks about the high school. Wait, does he? Maybe he doesn't. Revisionist history. No one fact checked me. Uh, I am all that is podcast. I think also important to know that the the library, though, is a built set. Okay, that makes sense. Yes. Um, but also, enviable library. Very Pretty cool, gorgeous. Very, really cool, huge, great, uh, great place for this. However, I have one part of this movie that drives me crazy. <laughs> is it the artistic sculpture? No. Uh, <laughs> I have a real problem with the, the shot they choose and the framing of looking out of the library into Vernon's office through the door, because there is a divider in that scene about three, about a third into the shot that drives me insane every time I watch it. Or is this like a Kubrick thing? (laughs) And the mistake is on purpose. Listen, I have a Kubrick <laughs> note to make in trivia later. Really? Uh, I do. Um, that's your one of the pods. <laughs> that I'm excited to talk about. Okay. This is not it, though. No, this is just bad. F- that divider should not be there. It almost gives it like a mirror-like look. Like, it I, It almost makes you feel like you're seeing into a, like that there's a mirror there instead, but it's yeah. this divide. Really bugs me. <laughs> I don't blame you. I thought it's a huge portion of the movie that you see look out that way. No, yeah, you're not wrong. <laughs> okay, this is a fair thing to take issue with. <laughs> but we talk about this library, and to me, the first I don't know, third of this movie is so hilarious, and it's all taking place right there. And it's it's a really great ensemble, and that includes Paul Gleason as Vernon coming in because I think just the interactions and the way that it plays. Um, and it's really quite funny. Like, I mean, I, I mean, that's I'm stating the obvious, but that first portion of this film is some of the funniest dialogue of all time. No, it really is. And I think like, you know, we talk a lot about on the podcast about like quotability and how that can like help the continued life of a film because it feels like this like shared uh, secret language you get to have with someone else who knows it, like and can recognize the thing you're saying. Like, I mean, I don't know how many times within the span of a week you and I say, can you describe the ruckus? Like, you know, <laughs> you know and it's, and even when you're doing like slight variations and misquoting, but you kind of have that recognition of where that is. And I think like one of the things in this like opening session I love is when they all fall asleep. Or they're all falling asleep. I think it truly, honestly makes me laugh. Just the ways in which their bodies move and how they're trying to fight it. And just like, I think the physical comedy of this, and I think this is where it's such a credit to these five actors, because they knew their characters deep enough to even know what would make sense of how this person would either fall asleep or try to fight sleep or try and stay occupied through the boredom. It's just like such a genius, like in physical comedy moment within this film. I like, um, always one of my favorites is the, when Bender decides to take the, the screws out of the door. Oh my God, <laughs> um, yeah. And that whole interaction of then Vernon coming in <laughs> yeah. and making Andy come over and try to prop the door. And yes. <laughs> it's not working at <laughs> no, all. And Vernon realizes it and then blames Andy for it. Yeah. He's like, you, you get this out of here, you know, and. And then gives probably one of my all-time favorite lines, which is the, 
I expected more from a varsity the letter winner. <laughs> but, like, and also what's so great about that hilarity is, like, he completely blames him. And I love how, like, this great thing happens between the five of them of, like, none of them are going to give Bender up. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, the coalition is between immediately the teenagers. Like, they don't care because they know they're not going to get in trouble. They know Bender's not going to get caught. So they, it's this immediate of, like, no, well, we can't give him up, even though we hate him. Like, Bender is, Bender, Bender's energy is intense right from jump. Like, this is clearly, so I, I always, his entrance into the library is always fascinating to me because if, listen, if you're listening to this podcast and you're an educator, everyone has that one kid in class that has to touch literally everything when they come in a room. Um, I'm also that kid, so I feel really okay <laughs> saying that. But he's just, like, flipping things and pushing. And then, like, he his energy is so, like, desperate for attention. Like, he needs a stage. It's actually better for him that there's probably people here during this attention as much as he seems to, like like spit vitriol at so many of them at different moments in this film. But there's also like, he kind of needs them because his performance relies on an audience and Vernon's not an audience for him. Vernon's Vernon just gets antagonistic and just plays right into it. But they're all, they all get to have that like disgust that he's kind of looking for. Yeah. I mean, Bender immediately though too, he gets hurt by the dismissiveness of them completely throughout it, right? Oh, like yeah. I mean, I think that's the... He, he puts on this hard exterior. Like you said, he's putting on a show because he, he, it's the only way he knows how to get attention. It's the way he lashes out and then, like, how everybody kind of reacts. But then when they just, just kind of... It's not the reactions he gets that bothers him. It's just when they start explaining why they don't care about him is yeah. what really bothers him. Well, and I also think, too, like, in many ways, like... Although I think they're set up to be foils for each other, Claire and Bender in many ways are very similar. Like, they both are very stuck within these, like, personas. Their personas protect them. Like, there's a, the line later, uh, we're all a little bizarre. Some of us are just better at hiding it. And I think, like, part of, part of like, the, the status of being a teenager is you're, like, this incredibly raw nerve that has to pick some sort of covering to protect yourself. And she is, she is, you know, chosen a particular protection that provides her some upward mobility in social class systems, provides her some sort of privilege. And his protection is this armor because of being denied those things. But they're actually like very similar functions and they both perform how they're, how people have essentially assigned them their roles you are a burnout and a freak and you're going to be a criminal and you need to act this way because this is what we expect from you. And you are a princess and you need to act this way. And they're both like weirdly pretty honest. And it's like Claire, I think at points is positioned as like more sympathetic because it seems like she gets wounded a little bit easier, but it's like Bender gets just as wounded as she does. So there's actually, they're so, their characters are more similar to each other. I think than any of the other pairings or groupings like within the five. Well, you see that with Andrew, right? I mean, he, he's immediately protective of Claire. Yeah. Like, and I will find, I find, <laughs> something I always find strange is, <laughs> None of these people seem to know each other. No. Which I find a little... I And I get it. I went to a small high school, so I'm sure of a much bigger high school. It's like... But they don't even seem to, like, have any idea who the other one is at all. Like, I just find that a little... And somebody that's as outlandish as Bender is, I have a hard time... I think it's put upon. I think it's the way, and I'm I'm not going to recognize you as who I know you to be outside this. To me, it's like almost like... The, 
I hate to say this, like the setup of the movie Clue, where there's like very clearly people in that room that know each other before right. they get to the, 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 the you know, the, the murderous night. And I think this is like a similar, like almost like whodunit setup of like, well, I'm not going to like give way that I know who you are. Yeah. Because then that gives way something about me. If I acknowledge that I know Claire is beautiful and popular and the homecoming queen and the princess of the school, then I have to recognize that I also respect or accept that as her status and similarly if I point out that I know that Bender's a freak I'm only playing into his hand so I think there's a way in which like as a high school student you might play it kind of cool like uh like I'm not going to give away that I know who you are in that way I think they all know each other but I think they just don't operate in enough of the same circles like I think that's why you have Claire and Andy talk about like you don't understand the pressure and clearly I think she feels it even more acutely than he does um, which we can get into in like later scenes as to why that is but I think that's what's maybe going on there they they talk about this movie that there is Ali Sheedy once said that there is like a two hour and like 30 minute or two hour it's 40 minute like it's a 90 minute movie but there's like a two hour 30 minute version of it um, that Basically, everybody only saw once, and then John Hughes kind of kept that one print, and then now it's just been locked away, um, so it doesn't exist out there. But there are moments where you go, like, I was thinking about the fact that, like, when Bender gets so mad at everybody, and he goes, and he, you know, but we jump then to the next scene, and they all decide that they're going to go to his locker together. Um, (laughs) I've always explained that as, like, I don't know, teenagers, that temperature changes a lot. (laughs) And I think, so I think this is the thing that happens here is even when they are in opposition, even when they hate each other, they also know that they're also strange bedfellows. Like we're all in this condition together. And when, you know, thinking about like you're a teenager, it's like eight hours. Like it feels like a millennia that you're going to have to spend with these people. So I think that's what, I think that's what can account for the, didn't you guys just all hate each other five seconds ago and now you're aligned? I, I mean, all right. I also wonder too, if it's like a little, like we feel bad. Yeah. So, like, we're, we're agreeing to go. <laughs> yeah, because we know he, like, kind of did him dirty. I will say, like, one of the scenes, and, like, speaking about coalitions, like, there's no denying there is an incredible intensity to the moment at which, like, they're all sitting on the floor together. Because it's just, like, devastating revelation after devastating <laughs> revelation. And one of the things, like, I really appreciate, and I think this is why it's so important that this first section is grounded with so much humor. So you can get to know these characters as their archetypes as enemies, as being in an alliance. So that way, when you get to the harder stuff, you feel like, oh, wow, I'm now learning a different dimension of like, I can't just accept. All right, listen, I hate her character, but I can't just accept Claire as like the princess and only think of her as that one thing. I have to think about that whether or not I think that's a real problem that she feels societal pressure to be perfect. And like, it's so hard being rich. Like, you know, whether or not like I want to mock at her sushi, um, like I have to feel for the fact that like she does that intense pressure is very real for her. Like she really does feel like she has to be this certain kind of way. And she doesn't even know why, but she just accepts it. And that, that is so deeply sad that that's her condition. You do end up feeling this incredible sympathy for her. And like, and I think that you can only have those moments if you first let us spend so much time in humor and ridiculousness, you know, them getting high and breaking windows, you know, like (laughs) dance sequences. (laughs) Yeah. I love the, I won't lie. I see. I love the dance sequence. Which one? 
What do you mean, which one? Well, because there's like a first kind of dance oh, sequence. Oh, so well, you kind of get the what the first one with yeah, Andy, yeah, um, which when that, he's high. Yes, that breaking glass. By the way, uh, John Hughes's biggest regret of this movie. It should be. It's mm. so, okay. Actually, <laughs> well, we're gonna have a little bit of section coming up here called the holdup of some other things. He okay, but so, let's yes, <laughs> from just a <laughs> other than the things that age this no at the time should have already been horrifyingly <laughs> bad in this film other than those things that is so stupid first off doesn't make sense uh, second off Emilio Estevez looks a fool third of all how would Vernon not have heard that well he might have been downstairs again looking at the private uh, all right, <laughs> that you is, feel that he had perfect access to he was I, allowed I to. don't see as big of a deal of this as like Carl was made I honestly think Carl got in his head I think that was some like you know, you know Carl was the man of the year in 1969 okay so he's still a little upset that Vernon's got his job um I I like I don't mind Emilio Estevez's dance moves in this. The dan- the I was talking more about the big dance sequence towards the end of the film. Now that rocks. Um, I thank you. So that's I, I agree with that. you. I, there's complaints about it out there because it's Why? like because it becomes a little more fantastical, I guess you could say. But um, I don't like it. So that actually that that scene was supposed to be just Molly Ringwald dancing. Uh, um, but she felt really uncomfortable. Um, so then they decided that they were going to just do all of them. And I think it works so much better. I mean, who doesn't think of the breakfast club? Like there's so many moments that you think of, but the, you know, we're on, we're recording this. They cannot see see that I'm dancing. (laughs) But yes, you're right. The, like the three, you know, Lee males, excuse me, you know, kind of doing the walk across with the arms up. Like, yeah, everybody thinks that. Or even Allison I, and and uh, Claire, you know, doing the kind of See, and I, I like the Allison and Bender shimmy back and forth. Oh, That's actually my favorite yeah. part of the scene. <laughs> Mainly because it's such like, because this is the thing, is, is like the character of Bender, who is like 90% of our holdup, is like, he's so sweet. And it's like, it's 100% like one of those cases where you watch, you're like, oh man, if just somebody loved that kid a little bit more, yeah, he'd be totally different. And it's not to say, because he's witty and he's smart and he's clever, but his biting nature is entirely bred by environment. And like, and I think that's, the dance sequence why I think it works is this, is first off, if you have a problem with that and you think it's too fantastical, then clearly you're not having random dance parties at your house. <laughs> and I have a suggestion for you. Do that because it'll bring you so much joy. <laughs> Tossy dance parties are my favorite way to burn out stress. And I think that's the thing is, is like, you don't want these characters to come to physical blows. Well, I think this is an expression of everything that they're trying to move towards. Like, what if we did move towards a joy where we were just people devoid of our specific markers and archetypes? What if I didn't have to be the brain for a moment and instead I was just another person out on the dance floor. It's actually an incredibly beautiful moment. They are very aware of their conditions, but in this moment, they don't have to be completely handcuffed to their condition. And I think that's what makes that scene so powerful. I would hate if that wasn't in this film. I, I 100% with you. I think what he, why this movie is so everlasting is it finds some type of weird, perfect mix of funny, raw, Heartfelt and cool. Yeah. Like, I, oh, yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't mean, again, not to sound dorky, but like, they're just these cool moments. To me, that dance sequence is, as, yeah, it seems outlandish, but it just, it feels cool. And like, the other scene to me is, 
I absolutely love the hall scene. Like, when they are trying to get away from oh, yeah, Vernon, yeah, like, yeah. and just the, you know, does it make a lot of sense that Vernon's just walking and they keep running into him? No, but it doesn't matter because you just have these five characters that you're rooting for trying to get away from the man, you know, who <laughs> Vernon, who's playing the literally the stand-in for all adults on, on kids, right? Yeah. Um, and that's kind of where I think it almost feels like. Like, Vernon's everywhere. This adult kind of over, you know, top of you as a kid is is just no matter where you go, mm-hmm. it's it's in your face. It's it's stopping you and them trying to get away from it. And you have Allison who's just like leaning on the lockers and everything. <laughs> just just a great sequence. And again, cool. Like it just yeah. feels cool. Like, well, because it's wish fulfillment. Because yeah. it's like, who doesn't want to kind of run amok in their high school? Right. Like, you know, and be silly and run around and like there's an element of, like, because there's also, like, this playful childlike thing of, like, a hide-and-seek that's almost happening here that returns them to something, like, a younger age when probably these dynamics were somewhat simpler, even if their home lives were already complicated. One of my favorite scenes, or the scene that I think I often come back to and really mull over and credit this film, we talk about this film as being, like, one of the most iconic teen films. And we've talked about it, I think, as, as you just really beautifully described, like, it, it, there is an element of just, like, raw and heartfelt. And I think, like, one of the sequences that's, like, kind of the fruition of all of the fun they've been having to be able to kind of reveal these deeper truths about themselves is an exchange that happens between um, Allison um, and Claire. And it's when they're sitting on the carpet. And obviously, there's, like, a lot of revelations <laughs> during this time. But they're, like, sitting on the carpet and they're just, like, there's this thing that happens where they're talking about, like, sexuality and how you're perceived and how that gets tied to reputation. And Allison says, if you say you haven't, you're a prude. If you say you have, you're a slut. It's a trap. And it's the first moment to me in a film where there's really never much of a coalition between the two women in the room. And there's a lot of gender dynamic things that are happening throughout the film and a lot of ways that gender is like kind of being used, particularly, I would say, against Claire. And in this moment where like we have the kind of hilarity of like Allison lying about being a nymphomaniac and then like admitting that she lied and she says this line and she expresses perfectly the double standard and the paradigm that so many like you know young female identifying people find themselves in and like for an 80s film to do this in in entirely in a a decade that is you know preceded by and then followed by many decades that do this kind of regressive thing of like women are kind of put into these two you know it's the you know it's it's the virgin or the whore like you know it's really what it comes down to this like incredible coalition of these two teenagers being really honest with each other of like, yeah, this is what it feels like to be a woman. I feel trapped because I can't be either thing because either thing is going to be perceived in a particular way. I just like, that's such a like brilliant stroke in this film. And I think this is why it can continue to resonate is because of moments like that where it's like, we're having fun. This is quirky. Oh, this is cool. But also, guys, this is something that teenagers really feel and are trying to work through. And the movie doesn't provide an answer, which is maybe a problem. But I don't think it's the job of the film to provide an answer. But I do think what John Hughes is doing before any other director would is saying, I'm going to present to you a really real thing that young women are going through and still go through today. I love that moment. I love their coalition. It's incredible. Yeah, I mean, he does a a nice job of connecting everybody through different ways. And that obviously is, you know, one of the more powerful ones. And especially for, you know, John Hughes to be able to to tap into that is is something. But again, I think this is something that speaks to, you know, one of the 
especially at this point in his career, John Hughes was very collaborative. He he was very open to um, the suggestions of, you know, his his cast. And, you know, I think probably took a lot from mm-hmm. Molly Ringwald, Ali mm-hmm. Sheedy, you know, to to allow that character, those characters to build. And even the, the sitting around in the circle, a lot of that's improvised by the cast. Like, so there's a lot of that that he allowed. And I think it was, at, again, I think, John Hughes was obviously an amazing writer. I mean, he he knocked this script out in two days. Wow. Like, he notoriously could write quickly. But I think that also allowed him then to be able to bring extra stuff in. And I think that's probably another one of those moments where you see that. Um, you know, another, I mean, a couple other really power is, you know, Andrew um, talking about um, what he did. And, and taping, you know, the budgets and, and going through this, this powerful moment of, like, not even what he had to deal with, but but the guilt that he could think about for what was I, Larry or, you know, I think or Lester. I can't remember. I think it's Lester. Yeah. yeah. Or La- I think it's like Larry Lester or Larry, something like yeah, that. Yeah, something um, like that, yeah. So, you know, and, and he's this more this realization and the, the concern that feels really deep, you know, um, obviously we talked about Brian and, and his story. And, you know, I, I mean, not to make it uh, like I do have a question, though, like yeah. what the hell kind of project is building a elephant lamp? Oh, my gosh. Okay, so I've been, like, really trying to think about the physics of this <laughs> elephant lamp. And honestly, my mind cannot. And listen. No master of physics, obviously, <laughs> on this side of the table. But I'm like, I can't even, like, why are you making an elephant lamp where you pull the trunk and that turns the lamp on? It sounds stupid. And honestly, I don't I, I don't blame him for his frustrations. But it is, like, an intense moment. And, like, you, know, you talk about, like, the thing with, you know, Andy. And when he's talking about this, it's like, what other film before this, like, talked about, like, a high school, like... And, and I'm going to say, like, because there's no way of not framing this way, like, him doing this high school bully thing... You know, where because he feels like he needs to do this because that's what his dad did. And like, I'm like, oh my gosh, John Hughes like writing about toxic masculinity before any other writer was really doing that in a teen film. Like, and overtly, like, he's like, I can't imagine like the shame he felt having to explain. And I'm like, oh my God. And this is where I'll say, like, complete credit to Amelia West of Us. I watched that and I'm like, holy hell, he is like, he is lighting this room up. He's going like, this is something that's like really important. The way he delivers that is incredible. And then when you get to the revelation about Brian and like the pressure and like what was going on with him, that feels intense. But then I'll also say like, and this is a credit to John Hughes, like, yeah, it's kind of awful that they start laughing at the fact that he wanted to kill himself with a flare gun. And like, but it's that levity of like, look, we're all sharing with each other here, but we also need to point out like, we're teenagers and we're making some dumb mistakes here and we're doing some things that are hard and some things that have consequences and we're all like battling through this, but like also we can safely battle through this together. Like, I don't know. There's something so cool about that. Yes. Uh, you know, you talked about that. I mean, obviously John Hughes had a, a huge issue with authority. <laughs> um, no. I mean, Vernon's whole character is based around his high school wrestling coach, um, who also um, failed him in gym class. Um, way so, rude. <laughs> way rude. Which, um, you know, he said he saw later in life and, and said that the, the, the teacher had complimented the film, but said he's still a jerk. Like, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, he's had some, some real feelings about adults. <laughs> but I also think, like, Hughes has to be someone who is working through what it really felt like to be a teenager. And obviously, as you said, like, things are influenced by the cast, but to write that 
the, these two sequences of like Brian having to talk about how he got detention and the way in which like I, honestly like I can't n- not I don't think I can say enough about like how impressed I am by that like you know monologue that's delivered by Andy but to write that like you have to have gone through some stuff in high school like or even just like the beauty of the line of like he writes and this is more of a hopeful thing that he writes for the Allison character like I don't have to run away and live in the street I can run away and I can go to the ocean I can go to the country I can go to the mountains like this is all about like wanting to break free and get away from authority at the same time and trying to imagine like some sort of different life. I have a new other question for you. Hit me. Does Barry Manilow know you raid his wardrobe? <laughs> That's one of the great lines of I mean, there are, you know, it's... Also, I, two hits, me hitting you, you hitting the floor. Right? I, I mean, just, classic dance is the thing. Like, you just... I, I To me, I always love... Uh, screws fall out all the time it's an imperfect place like I just feel like that is like a new like that is the mantra we all should have honestly that may be my new approach to life like you know it's an imperfect world like I just I think the and that's like the great thing about some of these lines to pull us away from the heft of just like what makes it so iconic is they're so cleverly written that you do just want to say them like I love to be in a space where I would have to say to someone, two hits, me hitting mm. you, you hitting the floor. <laughs> I would never be able to deliver that with any kind of authority, but it's so punchy. I love it. How, no many, how many clubs did you have in high school where someone had said, it's kind of social? Demented oh. and sad, but social. <laughs> <laughs> so I was in the honor society for ter- <laughs> like sorority in my college. I was in yearbook and speech and debate. <laughs> They were social, damn it. <laughs> they were social, but with deadlines and tasks. <laughs> and I mean, ultimately, even Vernon, though, he gets his, like, right, you know. Mess with the bull, you get, get the, the horns. horns. <laughs> I also do love, and it's not really a line, but, it, you know, Claire, who has sushi uh, way before most people did, um, I love when you're just giving her the look and, and Bender's just like. I don't know. Give it a try. (laughs) (laughs) It's too great. And I think that's like, it's all these like funny moments. Because there's all these like different pivots at which they all judge each other. Like in the way in which you would. Like, I'm going to be honest. If I was like sitting in detention in the 80s and someone busted out like a bento box, I'd be like, what is happening? Why is your lunch like this? And also, has it been sitting at room temperature this entire time? Is that sushi safe? My favorite is, is like, like Andy. And I also think that this is another fallacy in the movie. Like, wrestlers have to cut weight. What is he, what is this smorgasbord in front of him? <laughs> I want to talk about the lunches here. Um, we got Claire, who has the sushi. Yes. Allison, who... <laughs> Is definitely you. 100%. With the sandwich with the pixie sticks and Captain Crunch. It's completely you. <laughs> Elves and Allisons like to say to the f- five main elf food groups. <laughs> Bender has nothing. Yeah, I know. And then so Brian sad. has the soup, the peanut butter and jelly with the crust cut off and an apple. <laughs> but you're right. Andrew literally has a bag of chips, chocolate chip cook, a whole bag of chocolate chip cookies. Yes. Three sandwiches, milk, a banana, and an apple. I'm 100%. I will tell you. Wrestlers eat like that in the off season. They do not eat like that in the but again, I'm gonna argue this is the off season. Wrestlers don't wrestle that late into March. It makes no sense. Listen, he's got a big match next week in the required uniform. <laughs> <laughs> See, and that's another great pivot moment where, like, they judge, like, Claire for the sushi, and then, like, obviously they all judge Allison for her lunch, and then, like, 
Do you know, like, when Brian's just like, you wear tights? And he's like, I wear the required uniform. Yes. As a wrestler, let me tell you how many times I had to hear that line over the years. Truly and honestly, I've never heard anyone refer to it except in the Breakfast Club is uh. that way. And even when I was in high school and knew nothing about wrestling because it did not, uh, you know, speech and debate was not part of wrestling. Um, if, is that a, if that's a shock to anyone. But, like, I never heard it referred to as tights, so I find that really funny. All right. So here's, here's the last big question when it comes to quotes. Yes. You're an adult. Warren Tossi. Yeah. When you grow up, does your heart die? No, it doesn't. But I do think you're very afraid of that at all times (laughs) because I do think that can happen. I think there is this way in which at any point in our life, society tries to engineer us in a particular way. I think that happens in high school. There is a what you're supposed to be, what you're supposed to do. And like... My feeling towards anyone at any age is like, just choose something different for your life, live differently, and it doesn't have to happen that way. But I think it's easy for it to happen because we get stuck in these tracks and we think that they're important. It's really hard to pull back and get perspective. And I think that's like the urgency of what John Hughes writes here is like, I would think not just a fear for these teenagers, probably a fear for himself of like, am I going to become something else? Am I going to lose what it means to be connected to this time in my life where everything was possible and everything was messy? And that that beautiful disaster that we are as teenagers is something we can hold on to in a really precious way. And it doesn't have to be something that we like fear or subjugate to that, which is that time in our life. I don't know. I, I think that line is profound. And I think what Hughes does with that interaction between the kids, the adults and this, and then like, I think how it speaks to you generationally, like the more times you watch it, I think it's like incredibly profound. And and tons of credit to Ali Sheedy who just oh. delivers it with so much sincerity. Ali Sheedy's You just, <laughs> honestly, you're like, I, yeah, it does. Like you just, yeah. Just, she's just, she's remarkable. And, and please understand, I know I have come for the character of Claire because I think she's awful and terrible and I do not understand that being at all. However, I mean, because I wasn't that. I wasn't popular in high school. I can't react. I can't understand that that social strata but molly ringwald is everyone's incredible in this movie like molly ringwald's incredible janelle like everyone this entire cast it's i agree with you i I think it's such perfect casting um i think you look at everybody in their own right and you go i i get why you were a star at this time in your career and i know things change and and happen i i watch molly ringwald and it's like you see why she is was the star in the middle oh. of the 80s. I mean, there is a glow to her as an actress. Mm-hmm. Um, Ali Sheedy, I think, gives you this these layers of this character that is really phenomenal. Um, you know, Anthony Michael Hall is like, he's finding a different level within the movie that I think... Is there a worse and more awkward time in our life than when we have braces? And his had to get committed <laughs> to film. Right. <laughs> right. Just uncomfortable all the time. You know, so this character was essentially written for Anthony Michael Hall. Um, however, he still had to, um, you know, come in and, and you know. Audition. Audition for the role. But they talked about how everybody else coming in played the the brain as a you know, cliche of a dork, no. you know, or a nerd or whatever. Actually. And and they said he just came in and just played it straight. Like, yeah. and they said that's what essentially, although the character was pretty much going to be him already, or the actor was, it was pretty much his role to get, but that's why he essentially gets it. But he, so he's 
always pretty much cast it right away. But that's not how this film was. We have a sliding doors of casting. Ooh, tell okay. Me about it. So let's start Stark with Carl. Carl was not the first person hired for this film. Oh. It was actually Rick Moranis. Oh, stop it. Legitimately, who had come on to the film, but actually had to leave for creative differences. Uh. And what it essentially comes down to is Rick Moranis decided that this character needed to be Russian with a heavy Russian accent. <laughs> and John Hughes and him could not get along because he would refuse to do it any other way. I don't like to say Rick Moranis was wrong. <laughs> right? It makes no sense. It makes no sense. Um, so then we look at Molly Ringwald. Molly Ringwald was actually cast as Allison first. Mm. Um, but she did not want the role like she wanted to do Claire um but that's who she was supposed to be but why they were why she was in the Allison portion they were looking to cast um I'm sorry when she was cast as uh, Allison so when she decided to go over to playing Claire then they were looking at other people Robin Wright Penn ah uh. Laura Dern oh and Jodie Foster all up for this role so and here's like the interesting of Allison of Allison and interestingly, I could see them all in it, but I could also all see them playing Claire. Is that weird? Robin Wright Penn is Claire. I I could have I seen mean, Jodie Foster playing a great Allison. Oh yeah. Um, Laura Dern. I don't know if I see. She is a goddess, and she can do anything. I, listen, I agree. Uh, <laughs> um, I don't see Molly Ringwald as Allison. Uh, no, I don't. So, but can I? T- I also think though, if you look at '80s casting prior to this, I think. Molly Ringwald is not a natural Claire either. The homecoming queen, Americana, like most popular girl in high school, doesn't is not Molly Ringwald. I gotcha. And casting prior to this. So then Amelia Westeves was casted early, but he was casted as Bender. Terrible. Um, and was supposed to play Bender. The reason he ends up going over to Andrew is because they can't find anybody to play a wrestler type. Um, he literally looks like he's a wrestler. Right. Yeah. Um, so Emilio Estevez moves over to that portion. While they then go to cast Bender, really close to getting the portion part is Nicolas Cage. Mm, okay. Doesn't go to Nicolas Cage. Actually, somebody else gets it before and get, actually comes to set, which is John Cusack was was cast as Bender. Makes entire sense. So what happens is he comes, but when he starts going through the rehearsal portion of it, essentially John Hughes decides he's not intimidating enough. Also, that makes sense. <laughs> so ends up getting rid of him, brings in Judd Nelson. Well, because he can be your cool, edgy, older brother. 25-year-old not- Judd Nelson. <laughs> Are we talking about the holdup now? <laughs> <laughs> right, so let's talk about the ages here. Like, I mean, they go from Molly Ringwald and Anthony Michael Hall are 16, all the way up to Judd Nelson, who's the oldest at this point, which is 25. Yeah. Um. So I want you to think about that. Judd Nelson was 25, and Molly Ringwald was 16. <laughs> yeah, so to transition, to talk about the natural holdups of this, obviously the casting age difference is odd. It's weird, though, to me, because when I watch it, I don't think that Bender looks that much older than the no, rest of them. No, I actually them. agree with you on that. Um, but obviously, there's some discomfort well, in... you had, at the same time, with uh, St. Elmo's Fire, I mean, you had what, Emilio Estevez, Ali Sheedy, and Judd Nelson all graduated from high school in St. Elmo's Fire, which came out the... S- are all graduated from college, college, college at the same year that Breakfast Club <laughs> comes 
comes out. Yeah, so I mean, it tells you, obviously, but, and I will say, I don't find their castings unbelievable when I watch it. I still think they can look, but I think they all look like they're at least seniors in high school. Like, at very least. You know, so this is a film that, you know, it comes out in the 1980s. um, And as we have talked about in, in previous episodes, whenever you're dealing with films from a different time, there, there are natural holdups that happen. We are, our intentions of how we handle language change. Our, our views and how we handle certain topics develop and, and progress. I think even for its time, this film has a language issue that is really hard to get past. Like there is casual uses of slurs. There are jokes and references made by Bender in terms of like a type of sexual harassment towards Mm -hmm. uh, Claire that's really hard to deal with. I think, unfortunately, you know, Hughes is as a student of film is going to be building off of the attraction dynamics of that disgust, like that disgusting and attracted kind of trope that populates a lot of films in the thirties, forties, fifties, sixties, seventies, like, you know, like, you know, decades upon decades of like the, like, you know, roguish guy and the woman who tries to stand up to him, but inevitably falls in love with him. And I think unfortunately he's playing to those tropes, but in a way that like, is really uncomfortable in this. And I know someone could argue back, like, that's the point, that's how Bender is, but it's also, like, a hard thing to deal with this film because I don't know if the gender dynamics and politics of this film helped to support why Hughes had to make it as overt and deliberate, including, like, the the under-the-desk scene as he does. So that's, like, a hard thing with this movie. Yeah, and the the under-the-desk scene's hard um, because, you know, it's obviously what's happening there, um... Molly Ringwald has talked that she didn't want that scene in the movie, um, where it's actually not her in that scene, um, and, and everything, but they unfortunately kind of went forward with it. So it's hard to kind of let them off the hook. And that's a really bad scene. And, and this is a problem that we, we have to talk, like you said, it's, it's a problem with 80s comedies, especially, Mm -hmm. um, where you run in these problems. I mean, Hughes has this issue with a lot of his teen comedies. I mean, it's a point that you and I've talked about. We will never if you like the movie there's no that is completely okay but we will never do 16 candles on this um because it it just has too many problems that we're not going to overlook and can't overlook um and i also think like listen there's nothing wrong with pointing out what film was doing regressively and it's to say like oh those are you know 2023 eyes no that that stuff was wrong then like there there's no way of denying this and i think it's like it's okay to hold film up to a certain standard and say like look what you may have done in this maybe may have been of its time but you may have also helped to perpetuate something and you got to kind of answer for that and hughes definitely has that within his language you know, certain way, line deliveries by Anthony Michael Hall in this yes, film. Yeah, Bender and Brian both have two lines that are delivered, you know, really In a way rough. that, ta- yeah, um, yeah. You know, but it kind of moves us into talking about John Hughes because Molly Ringwald back, um, I believe it was 2018, um, did a really, I had done an open essay um, and it talked a lot about you know, even her kind of reconciliation with the Hughes films and her portion in it. Uh, She talks about how at that time she would not let her two youngest daughter watch those films. Um, And she completely recognizes the, as we call it on here, the holdup or whatever you want to say, the problematic portions of these films, especially those films that she's in. Now she, you know, believes that there's still a place for these films and there's still, it it allows for there to be discussion and, and everything, but she, 
openly talks about that, you know, she doesn't shy away from the fact that she recognizes, you know, that there were a lot of issues with Hugh's writing at that time and, and what he put into his films. Listen, he was writing for his from his own positionality, his own subject and context and time. And it's like, and that's like, listen, this is the fun of film analysis. If these things are meant to be cultural artifacts, they inform something about a time. And what it informs about this is that this was, you know, I don't, I, I still, I still will favor that there was, there's definitely articles that would have challenged it at its time mm-hmm. in terms of, again, gender politics, use of language, use of like some of the line deliveries. Um, you know, however, I think it's, you know, it's important to be reflective on that because then it helps us to contextualize, like, if this is a cultural artifact of a particular moment, like, what does it help us to inform about that time? What, what, what about it is timeless? Like, we've talked about this. In this film, there is a discussion about gender politics and toxic masculinity and finding oneself and reconciling what is it going to mean to grow up? What part of me do I have to foreclose upon in order to be an adult? There are some timeless things in this movie. There are also some things that are of its time and should stay there. Uh, and another, you know, thing with, you know, we always see with Hughes is there's a very obvious lack of diversity in yeah. this film. Um, so, you know, kind of look... Let's look at John Hughes, right? Um, this is the portion where he does his 16 movies yeah. right in a row, right? He's He's got 16 Candles, Breakfast Club, Weird Science, Pretty in Pink, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and Some Kind of Wonderful. Um, you know, it's interesting to look at this because essentially what ends up happening is Hughes, he makes his name in this period of time on the back of Anthony Michael Hall and Ringwald. Um, he wanted to use them as basically they were going to be a team. Um, but what happens is you have 16 candles in breakfast club where he has both of them in it. He then goes to Anthony Michael Hall and wants him to do weird science mm-hmm. from there. This is where things start to fall apart a little bit. We move on to Pretty in Pink, where Anthony Michael Hall was supposed to play Ducky. Oh, okay. But Anthony Michael Hall decides he doesn't want to do those types of films anymore. He wants to try to branch out a little bit. And Anthony Michael Hall talks about it. Like, he felt like he was, like, a Hughes' like, other kid. Like, he wow. was very close. He felt like when they were on set together, like, they had kind of a shorthand where they could, you know, and he felt that. But after he chooses not to do Ducky... He never talks to him again. Oof. Um, Hughes never talks to him again after that. And Anthony Michael Hall also was supposed to be Ferris Bueller, um, but also chooses not to take that role. And then we then push that forward to some kind of wonderful where Ringwald turns down the role in that film. And at that point, he just stops making teen movies. He moves on to she's having a baby and then only does adult comedies and kid comedies. Um, And Molly Ringwald talks about it. Like she once said about him, she said, most people who knew John knew that he was able to hold a grudge longer than anyone. His grudges were almost supernatural things, enduring for years, even decades. We were like the darling children when they made the decision to leave Neverland, and John was Peter Pan, warning us that if we left, we'd never come back. Yikes! <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> she wrote that after he passed. Like, yeah. um, you know, and, you know, they talked about the set of Ferris Bueller. Now, Ferris Bueller is the one that does not have Anthony Michael Hall, does not have Ringwald on it. And they talked about how it was a, just a different set. Uh, making Ferris Bueller's, you know, day off, Mia Sarah talked about how, you know, he had developed this very close relationship with the other actors in the other films, but he really had created that environment he sought to create where he was one of them and he didn't have that on Ferris Bueller and and hated it. They said he was miserable. And Molly Ringwald talked about how, you know, you talk a lot about these layers in these films that he was able to get. Mm-hmm. And Molly Ringwald talks about how when she watched his later films, she said you he lost this, like, the heart of his movies. She said they were incredibly funny, but they had they weren't that that deeper level that he had had in these other films, that whatever it was he was just this really strange, brilliant writer, brilliant director, brilliant artist in his own right, but very sh- strange and and. But I think it also speaks to like why he, you know, many of us think about like he's a writer director. He can't direct that many movies. Like he he wrote a lot, he produced a lot, and I think like perhaps here is like a guy who. He wanted to keep playing in the sandbox with the same toys and didn't understand when the toys had outgrown the sandbox. Like, I think he wanted to stay in this youthful space. But I think the problem is, is like with that is like creating a company of actors is great, but not recognizing that those actors are going to grow up and need to find their own identities because you've firmly been able to establish, well, I'm an adult and I've ascended to a type of adulthood and creativeness where I want to still live in that space. What you're not doing is you're denying those actors those opportunities to find that for themselves. And like, so I get probably why his interactions were different. Like Molly, you know, that's a, it's a, I think a fair and also a harsh takedown of probably the pain that comes with knowing like, once we broke the band up, like it was kind of never the same, but also like that naturally has to happen. That can't, Ben doesn't keep playing on like those companies kind of break up and like, so you had it for a moment and like, look, none of his films, I think have any of the resonance that breakfast club does. Like, that's it. That's the one, that's the one that's got everything and the layers and, and throughout all of its problems has probably the most to say, but that's also, I love Christmas vacation and I love Ferris Bueller's day off and I love vacation. I love the great outdoors. And like, you know, it's hard to go like, I'm almost glad that happened because maybe we don't get those. Right. And what a shame that would be to not have those things that we all keep coming back to for very different reasons than why we come back to The Breakfast Club. So let's talk about, you know, the impact of this film. It debuted February 1985. It was a critical and financial success. Like, what do you think is its big umbrella impact on... I think what it does for like the realm of teen films, like I really think that's what this comes back to because I think it, you know, helps to remind people in the same way that like what the outsiders did for like YA fiction. I think this does for like the teen movie going forward. I don't think there are many films that ever send to what the breakfast club did. I think like it, I think it provides a market. I think essentially it provides a capital for teen films, but I don't know if that, anyone really kind of like comes to this. This is not to say that there aren't, you know, films that definitively have profound moments or like moments of a kind of profundity about like youth. But I also think that everyone's kind of striving to be this and the influence and the effects of it are like tremendous. You cannot mention a teen film in spitting or further distance from this. It's not somehow influenced 
by the DNA of Breakfast Club being in American culture. Yeah. I mean, you you take the fact it's it's the gold standard of 80s films. It's the gold standard of teen films. You know, we, we take Rebel Without a Cause to get to, you know, American Graffiti, to get to, to Fast Times, to get to Breakfast Club. And then Breakfast Club just takes it to a different level where, like you said, every film is getting compared to it at that point. I mean, it is on the posters on almost every, you know, dorm wall or you could see it going down a hall. And that poster, by the way, that picture done by Annie Leibovitz. Which oh, I that's so, yeah. yeah. Well, I, you know what? That body positioning actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that's very, very Leibovitz. But everybody visually takes that imagery and they think about it. I mean, heck, even Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, you know, parried yes, it. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. like, it's... I agree. Like, it's just everything at this point is gets compared to it. Any new teen movie, they talk about Breakfast Club before they talk about anything else in its comparison to it. Yeah, and I think, like, there are moments in film history where you have that, where something becomes, like, the immediate reference point. And this is, like, definitely one of these. Um, you know, you have... Within this, of course, you have, like, the creation of the Brat Pack, like, to remember the fun of, like, 80s culture and, like, the movies and, like, kind of this grouping of, you know, there's, I think there's, try they, people have tried to do, like, different versions of this since, but I think, like, there's a power in which these actors were kind of all operating at, like, the top of their game, were super famous, were, like, all dating each other and, like, and in and, 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 and a lot of films together. Although it's funny, if you look at the list, it's actually not that, it's, like, actually not that long of a list of films that are, like, Brat Pack films. Right. But it's like, that's even an interesting thing of this is like, it created like a kind of Hollywood elite or a space for like a Hollywood youth elite. That's really interesting. And, and obviously has like an incredible impact in the eighties. You know, we kind of look at where their careers of these actors go after this. Um, you know, I don't know if any of them really ex- kind of get to the heights that they had during this period. Um, you know, the interesting ones to me is the what ifs. Um, Anthony Michael Hall. So I told you I'd get my one on this. Yes, day. Yeah, yeah, go for it. So Stanley Kubrick saw The Breakfast Club. Yeah. Loved Anthony Michael Hall in it and decided he wanted him for Full Metal Jacket. Oh, Jesus. And literally for months and months and months, they tried to work out a deal. And it just never came to fruition. And obviously it then goes to, to Matthew Modine. Not one part of me likes that. He would have destroyed Anthony Michael Hall. He would have never gotten a chance evil dies tonight. He would have destroyed that young boy. Uh, but you just think about the fact of like, like, you know, he, he said he re- compared him to a young, Kubrick compared him to a young Spencer Tracy. Oh God, no. And wanted Inaccurate. him as the, the lead. <laughs> Um, so it would have been an interesting turn, but he doesn't do that. And obviously, I mean, he's had success, but it's just, you know, uh, Molly Ringwald. I, I think we have to talk about the, th- the films she turned down. And I think her career is different if we see that. Yeah. Um, she turned down Blue Velvet. Yeah. She turned down Some Kind of Wonderful, which we talked about earlier as Amanda. She turned down Sally and When Harry Met Sally. Oh, I'm glad for that. She turned down um, Demi Moore's portion in Ghost. Mm-hmm. And then the two interesting ones. This is the biggest one everybody knows. She turned down Vivian in Pretty Woman. Mm. That goes to Julia Roberts. <laughs> and you'll love this one. She turned down Sydney Prescott for she, Scream. Thank Jesus she did. She chose not to do that because she was 27 years old at the time. <laughs> and did not want to do another teen but role. I'll, I'll say this. Like, Molly Ringwald... 
is incredible and like her influence and what she did for Hollywood, like chef's kiss. And, and I love that she went and did French films. Like, you know, I think that's great, but I also think that she does not make sense in those parts. And I know that's like hard to say because it's like, you think of those, but those, those were like career making films, not I'm already established and going to do this, like to further my career. I, I think all of those things that she turned down make sense. I don't think she fits in any of those. Parts. It's always interesting when we do those types of things because you go, is the movie different though, right? Oh. Like, is it the success? Like, we we want to say, well, you would have had the success, but is the movie the same well, without it? Well, it's the it? Stoltz Michael J. Fox thing. All right. Like, so as we get to the end of this episode, I, I do have a couple of quick questions for okay. you. Do you like the name The Breakfast Club? I mean, they're there for eight hours. They don't eat breakfast. It's cute, so yes. What about, I'm going to pitch a, a name for you, The Lunch Bunch. Awful. It sounds <laughs> stupid and like a really bad Western. All right. <laughs> Who is the best dancer? Molly Ringwald. Oh, okay. Yeah. Nice. Um, does Bender want to keep getting detention so he doesn't have to be at home? Entirely. Okay. Yeah. Also, uh, Bender would have been had detention until May 19th, 1984. Nice. Yeah. Uh, Vernon not being able to recognize that uh, tells you a lot about Vernon's own pathology. Absolutely. Um, would this... Um, uh, do Claire and Bender do the devil's tango inside the closet? No. <laughs> because he was 25 years old. And she was six. No. Uh, uh, no. I don't think that happens. Um, I, I, there's a lot of talk and not a lot of action in this movie. Do you think that this film is what whiplashes to sports movies that the breakfast club is to prison movies? Like this film feels like it's, it's framed like a prison film, right? The letter you get Bender put in solitary confinement, you know, the breakout. The <laughs> I can't say I've ever thought about it that way, but I do see what you're saying, that there's a formula that it's following that's actually from a very different genre than the one it's occupying. Yeah, I buy that. Okay, all right. How about so now, now let's uh, let's get to uh, everybody's favorite, sequel, prequel, remake, Boo, remake. nobody's favorite. <laughs> My sister, Jolene, literally sent me a meme the other day that was Bender saying... Do not ever effing remake The Breakfast Club. Ah! <laughs> um, so what I'm going to ask you, I'm not going to ask you to recast like we have in the past. What I'm just wanting to know is I want you to give me a very quick pitch for each one of okay. these. All right. So I do have this. Okay. I came prepared. All right. Excellent. Um, okay. So what does the sequel look All right, like? So my sequel um, is the Monday after um, they've all been in detention. Um, and the tension that arises is only told over the series of the day to essentially ask like answer the ultimate question what what would happen when they were all together again okay yeah i got you. so but it only takes place over one day my other alternative sequel had to do with um them all getting detained during prom because they all ended up at prom together because bender's like done a prank and they all kind of get accused of it <laughs> and it'd be like a whodunit like a really cheeky whodunit but i also really would love to see what happens to them the monday after they've do, all been in do detention. the couple stay together absolutely not and i'm going to explain why here in a second my prequel is i would like to see uh vernon um and the kids who made him become a horrible educator and essentially <laughs> like I'm thinking like a Revenge of the Sith, like descent, and then like it's like Order 66 at the end, and he's like telling everybody you mess with the bull, you get the horns. My remake would be something that is more reflective of American classroom spaces and that fixes the actual actual dumpster fire of an ending that John Hughes wrote to this movie. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's it's not either of our favorites. She put on lipstick and a pink shirt. <laughs> I hate the ending of this movie with every fiber of my being. Also, are we going to talk about the fact that poor Brian... He only writes a 96-word essay to a 1,000-word essay for all five of them. Okay, 96 words is not an essay. (laughs) That's my point. It's a sticky note. You know, and I agree. Always been my problem. Shrek at least uh, fixed that problem by by doing the opposite. Um, They gave the alternate Breakfast Club ending. I hate everything you just said. Um, <laughs> my So my my reboot of this would be that it's a, uh, a public school in Chicago and that it's telling the story of the detentions. But what you don't realize until the end of the film is that they are the children of all of the original members of the Breakfast Club. And what explains why they didn't realize this is because it's a massive high school, so they wouldn't have known each other's parents. And they really, in this context, don't really know each other that well because it's like a 2000 class. Yeah, that works. That sounds yeah. like something that they're going to drop on Paramount or something. Yeah, it 100% is. And then it's like, everyone's like, whoa, they're going to make reference. And then the parents slowly pick them up at the end of the day. Those are my, so sequel, prequel, remake, reboots. I like it. I like it a lot. Thank Very you. Much What's so. yours? Uh, my sequel would be, um, you know, 35 year class reunion. Oh, nice. Yeah. We get to see where they're at. Yes. Uh, Love that. You know, uh, <laughs> um, I would like to see a, a prequel, or not like necessarily, but a prequel. Can we get Vernon and Carl in high school in the late 60s together? Oh my God, his like run up to become man of the year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Yes, that would be dope. <laughs> <laughs> I think only you and I want to watch that. Absolutely. <laughs> a reboot. I'm going to steal from The Ringer. Uh, okay. They talked about this. I like this idea, which was essentially do a series which is like on Netflix but every week is a different group of kids in detention. Shut up that's the greatest idea. Yeah. Someone so, should do that. <laughs> and then my my remake I wouldn't remake it. I would just I would do a Broadway show of this. I think it could work as a Broadway play. I think the tension of these sequences throughout the film would be even more present if they can't really leave the library because it's just a single set. There'd be something yeah. really fascinating within that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could also have that, like, secondary set a little bit over, but I agree with you. I, I think really just the main focus being the library would work completely. Um, they did, I guess, a version of this in 2004, but it was a parody show. I would want to play this straight as just a straight, like, play. Yeah. I think would work really nicely, actually. I entirely agree with that. This has been so fun to revisit this absolute classic with you um, and to really get to reflect upon all the ways in which this has been such an indomitable influence on cinema culture. If you are not currently following us on social media, please follow us at How Could You Podcast on Instagram at How Could You Pod on Twitter. You can visit YouTube and Facebook and uh, search for How Could You Podcast to find our content there as well and updates about our upcoming shows. You can email suggestions, thoughts, comments, musings to HowCouldYouPodcast at gmail.com. Please pay attention. We have a lot of exciting things coming up with Record Store Day in the works um, and the rest of the season ahead. A naked blonde walks into the bar with a poodle under one arm and a two-foot salami under the other. She lays the poodle on the table. Bartender says, I suppose you won't be needing a drink. Naked lady says, enjoy the odyssey. (laughs) 